I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore American history and thought leadership through conversations with best-selling authors. Today, I'm interviewing Julia Swig, an emerging historian, about her new bestseller, Lady Bird Johnson, Hiding in Plain Sight, which came out March 16, 2021, and we did the interview as a program for the Freedom Foundation of Valley Forge, in front of a virtual audience on June 9, 2021. Enjoy. Julia, welcome. We know you've had a very busy day and busy evening. Uh, for those in our audience uh, who don't know, Julia is a senior research fellow at the LBJ School. Before that, she was a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. She's uh, quite a scholar, written books on Cuba, Latin America, and American foreign policy. But this wonderful new book on Lady Bird is her first biography. It came out on March the 16th and immediately made the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, during the course of our program, if anybody has any questions that you'd like to ask of Julia, please enter them in the chat box, and I will do my best to, to get to them over the course of the program. So, Julia, welcome to the uh, Freedom Foundation at Valley Forge, the Dallas-Fort Worth chapter, although we have our national chairman, uh, David Harmer uh, from Valley Forge, and and some folks from uh, elsewhere, but anyway, welcome welcome to our group. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for your patience and waiting for me. Sure. Well, Julia, when we think about um, Lady Bird and we think about <laughs> her husband, LBJ, of course, we're Texans and we, we know uh, of them well. And I actually met Lady Bird when I was in the fourth grade. Uh, they put a historical marker on Liz Robertson's birthplace in Salado. And then when I was at the University of Texas at Austin, she was a member of the Board of Regents and everybody thought very highly of her at UT, but uh, she had many accomplishments as your book points out, but maybe her most difficult accomplishment and greatest challenge was to be married to Lyndon Johnson. Uh, and so uh, I think a question just about everybody has is, what was it in Lady Bird's wiring that gave her this unshakable graciousness toward her husband that uh, empowered her to stand by her man, to use Tammy Wynette's song, and put up not only with his ruthlessness, philandering, and dishonesty, but also the way he talked down to her in public and treated her in many instances like she was hired help? What what? what was in her system that allowed her to be able to put up with such a, such a difficult marital challenge? So I think the way that you frame the question aptly reflects what our assumptions are about her because of who he was. Mm -hmm. Essentially that she was his victim, that she had no agency, that somehow because of his philandering and his vulgarity that she was his doormat. What surprised me so totally in researching this book and writing the book is how absolutely that wasn't the case. 
and that the uh, partnership that the two of them developed over 30 plus years of marriage, but that was really quite solidified by the time they arrived in the White House was a lot more layered than, than the, the depiction that you gave. So my answer to your question is it's true. She was extraordinary and she had immense inner resolve and strength. It's also true that she loved him. It's also true that she thrived on, let's use the word power, the power that attaching herself to him gave her. By the time they were in the White House, but well before, and here I'm talking about his political career and their media business that she was so vital in building, you know, this was this was a woman who it turns out thrived on ambition and the excitement and the access and the um, being a one of you know a woman in the room. So, so my answer, homage is that she was extraordinary and special, and he was incredibly difficult. But they had some kind of chemistry, so that the the kind of quick two-dimensional notion that I noted at the beginning is just not the case of what was going on between the two of them, which isn't to excuse any of his awful behaviors, but just to try to give some sense of, of what it was that she derived from her role in that marriage. Well, one of the most surprising things that I learned from your book, we always understand that for Lyndon Johnson, politics was oxygen. But in your book, you say it was not only oxygen for Lyndon Johnson, it was oxygen for Lady Bird. And you say that on page 25. So before you started researching and writing this book, did you have a prior appreciation for how uh, much she enjoyed and thrived on politics? No, not at all. And, and I should say that I'm the I'm a very it, it's a weird fit that I wound up writing about Lady Bird Johnson because my background is foreign policy in Latin America and Cuba and diplomatic history. Um, but I was interested in writing about women and power. And so before I took this on, my sense of her was pretty much the two dimensional sense that you described, but also you know, that highway beautification and wildflowers and, but a pretty traditional conventional notion of her first ladyhood. And then I was completely surprised to find a person who grew into, I mean, it wasn't that she was a political animal from the get-go, but she really grew into it and took, uh, found herself thriving on the rope line and enjoying meeting people and traveling around the country and gathering intelligence and and spreading intelligence and doing all of the sort of behind the scenes and overt parts of of his political career she she loved it i think she didn't always love it but she really did take to it yeah now as your book points out and i think as everybody on this audience knows in in many respects maybe in every respect uh, LBJ's years as president were probably the toughest years of his adult life with all the fallout over 
uh, Vietnam. And yet, as your book points out, it seems to me these uh, the years, the White House years may have been the most fulfilling years of Lady Bird's life when she could stand on her own, pursue her own important ambitions, and she called it our presidency. So did you have any appreciation for how strong and effective a first lady she was before you decided to write this book? No. I mean, that comes out in the doing and in the research. And this book is um, would not have been possible were it not for her choice as first lady to record her experience in the White House. It's a really important part of who she was and her orientation. But she was trained as a journalist and a historian and had a deep appreciation for documenting their political career and especially in the presidency. So um, that meant leaving this incredible record. I think of, I, I call them the other LBJ tapes of uh, a kind of beat by beat account of her experience of the White House years. And that's where I was able to hear and then of course read the transcripts to see um, how involved she was in some of the core aspects of the presidency and how much she thrived in it. I mean, she was very, she wasn't only busy with ceremonial things and the duties of the, the, the official duties that we associate with the first lady, but she had policy chops. And as we know, she, she chose to pursue some of them, her environmentalism, most especially with enormous energy and seriousness. Mm-hmm. Now your prologue, is devoted to Lady Bird's Huntland Strategy Memo that she wrote and delivered to her husband in May 1964, uh, which was obviously before the real start of the 1964 presidential campaign. So, Julia, what's the significance of that memo? The Huntland Strategy Memo is a document that I had the audacity to rename when I found it in the LBJ library, it was just called a letter from Lady Bird to Lyndon. But I, I elevated it to call it the Huntland Strategy Memo. One, it was written at the Huntland Estate in Middleburg, Virginia for the place. But two, it was written as a memo, pros and cons, handwritten, nine pages on her stenographer's notebook. And it was all about strategy. And the fundamental question she was at answering for LBJ was, upside and downside of running or not running in the fall 1964 presidential election. And I think people would be surprised as I was to learn just how much he doubted. We knew that he had doubts. This It's a story that's more widely told closer to the election and the, the August convention. But early on, he had major doubts about whether if he ran, he would be able to keep the country unified. And he was very insecure, very thin skinned about the criticism of the Northeast elite of his uh, that sort of corn pone Texas derision that that he and Lady Bird were subjected to. He was very anxious about Vietnam. He and she could see already that it threatened to derail their very ambitious uh, policy ideas and agenda for the home front. And um, this was when the war on poverty legislation hadn't passed, when the civil rights bills were stuck in the Congress, when McNamara had 
was coming back from his fifth trip in five months from Vietnam to push the president to escalate. And so he calls her when she's in Huntland and he's in the White House and says, you know, I'm pulling my hair out about this. They're talking about it all the time. He says, Bird, can you lay this out for me? Tell me what you think. Lay it out for me. And she writes this pro and con memo. And the important part about it, among many things, is that in it, she says, you know, you're too young to step out of the arena now. And I don't want to go back and live with you at the ranch because you'll be miserable and so will I. You should run and you'll very likely win. And then in three years and change, in February or March of 1968, you can announce to the country that you won't be standing for a second term. And of course, that's precisely what he does, Talmadge. And it's a big surprise to everybody but Lady Bird and Lyndon and a handful of other people who've been let in on their decision. And I thought that's very significant because it, and I have it as the prologue to the book, because to me, her setting the arc and his of the presidency and his having the trust in her judgment to ask her to lay that out and then to implement the strategy with her, as I show in the book, tells me just how important she was to his presidency. Well, I mean, I, I feel like I've read a fair amount of history through the years. I had never heard of this memo, and I suspect that uh, most people had never heard of it. Uh, do you have any uh, idea as to why why it's been missed? And Because, you know, when, when LBJ announced in, in March of 1968 he wasn't going to run for a second term, everybody was just shocked out of their minds. Mm -hmm. here, here was Lady Bird, who basically said, this is what you need to do, and this this – uh, memo is and presumably has been in the LBJ library for a long time. I'd never heard of it before. Yeah, it's been sitting there since the early 70s. Um, look, I mean, my answer to why it was missed, it wasn't entirely missed. There's a couple people who kind of flick at it, but I think it was missed because her story and her significance were missed. And that has to do with the way presiden presidential history is done. I mean, the, we haven't had a woman in the presidency yet. And, and that right there means that we have a man in the presidency and a cohort of presidential historians who tend to be men writing the story with their own biases and their own assumptions. And I don't, you know, I don't think that, you know, you can call that sexist. It's just what it is, right? It's just when you have a certain way of storytelling, a certain set of questions that are asked, a certain amount, number of protagonists whose stories one assumes are important. And of course, the role of the first lady as being so ill-defined. And in the Johnson's case, I would say, but for a very few people at the very center of the White House, most people didn't really have an appreciation for how important she was. And that was partially by design. She left this incredible record. It was obvious to somebody like Bill Moyers, for example, and others, how important she was, but she was a woman of her time. And so being very, very overt about her partnership with this very powerful man wouldn't have been her style. Mm -hmm. That's in part why it was missed. Yeah. But now it won't be. 
No, thanks to your book. Yeah, you can't miss it. It's right there at the very beginning. Now, one of uh, Lady Bird's main tasks as uh, Linda Johnson's wife was to provide support for him uh, with her, quote, near Buddhist inner calm when he'd uh, periodically get severely depressed. And she also would help him make these important personal decisions like whether to run for president. And uh, because, in fact, Everything I've read, he actually he's really struggled with making decisions. I mean, he had trouble figuring out if he's going to run for president in 1960 and then in 1964 mm-hmm. and whether he should run in 68. So as I was thinking about mm-hmm. what I learned about ladies' personality, uh, I thought of a term that's often used with animals, that she was a whisperer mm-hmm. to him like no one else. So why do you think her calm and quiet words as time went by, became so persuasive to him? Well, I've been married for almost 30 years. I think there's something that happens with the march of time with people that know one another so well. And in their case, where your political friendships start to wither on the vine because his presidency was under such duress and they were losing friends. I think that they're, it, the kind of embattled nature of that presidency and the isolation that one experiences in the White House clearly brought them more close, closely together than ever before. And she understood his depression. She understood his insecurity. She understood his ambition. I think once he lost Walter Jenkins which is an important part of this story, she really becomes his, well, at one point I, we write a, I write about her being jokingly referred to as Mrs. Vice President. She becomes in so many dimensions, his absolute North Star. And when you're in politics, friends are fickle too. So like I said, I think that they just came to rely on one another tremendously. Now, looking at the back of your book and the books that you read and as part of your research, obviously you read all of Robert Carroll's uh, biographies of, of LBJ. And from where you came out about Lady Bird and their marriage compared mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. where he comes out. Uh, of course, we, he hadn't written his book about most of his presidency as well as their final years. But in terms of the books that have come out, do you sense a, a, a real difference in how you view her and their marriage as opposed to what his conclusions were? Yes, I do. Okay. I, I mean, what are those differences? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the differences are pretty, like, Caro, I think, with one important exception, two important exceptions, Kara's overall take is, as I described in the beginning, this notion that she lacked agency and she was his victim, she was LBJ's victim. And because he hasn't gotten into the body of the presidency itself, I can't say where he's going to come out in terms of her role on the big policy issues that she took on or on the big policy issues of the White House, like Vietnam and civil rights. Um, 
he interviewed a number of people who shared with him his observations of that kind of vulgar, humiliating side of LBJ. My take is based on lots of interviews and lots of her own description of her own experience in the White House. And I decided to take that her something that she said to a biographer who she cut ties with in the 1990s as my starting point. This person was trying to sort of focus too much on the philandering and the infidelity. And she said, you'll never understand either of us if you don't understand how totally intertwined we are. So I, I don't I don't know at the end of the day why Caro is so kind of uniformly negative. The two exceptions are he makes a very important point about how much closer they become after the 1955 heart attack. And when they come back to the ranch and Lady Bird is so essential to getting him back to health and that kind of intimacy lays the tracks for what they're able to do then going forward, I think. Um, and of course, her family funds finance the acquisition of the radio station and the first political campaign. So he's not 100% dis dismissive of her. But the other thing is that I should say to be really fair about this, writing about LBJ is a monumental task and the vast amount of material just about LBJ, in fact, has taken a lifetime for him to cover. So now to insert, as I try to, Ladybird into the White House years, you know, that's a, that's a, 123 hours of tape to listen to over almost 2 million words of transcripts to read. It's a lot of material for one historian to get his arms around. Yeah. So I'm helping. Well, thank you. Uh, the thrust of your book, it seems to me does spring from the contents of Lady Bird's white house diary, which of which there's transcripts. And now as of 2013 through 2017, you can actually listen to her tape mm -hmm. recordings that were transcribed. And as you say, and by all accounts, her diary was by no means a literary masterpiece, even though in some of her other works, she proved, in fact, she was a terrific writer. But what was it about her diary that made you want to not only dive into it, but, but expand upon it? Well, I'm not a Texan as you obviously know, but listening to that beautiful East Texas lilt is very intoxicating. Um, but more seriously, you know, if, if, you, if you're a student of history and you've read about the 1960s, you've read about the LBJ presidency and the political assassinations of the time and the civil rights battles and the urban riots and the whole story, and Vietnam, of course, the whole story of the 60s, the entire cast of characters, and then you discover this unexcavated body of material from a woman that was participating and present for all of those events and had something to say about them that was based on almost always her first person experience of these people and these moments. I mean, that just to me was, was an incredible gift and, and listening and reading and what I would do would be to read the transcript. I read, the transcript of every single day that she recorded starting in November 22nd, 1963 through January 31st, 1969, about 850 days over that period. And then when I found material that I really wanted to dive into because it was significant to my, where I was 
in the story, I would listen to her because in the listening, you get so much more, you get drama, you get emotion, you get the pausing, the size, the, um, her ability to go from light to dark in a nanosecond. I mean, it's just it's beautiful material. Now, one of the most intriguing features of your book is its account of the relationship between uh, Jacqueline Kennedy and Lady Bird Johnson, which most of the time was largely, but not entirely, positive. And as I, you know, tried to draw my own conclusions uh, from this after reading about it in your book, it seemed to me that they were more partners in history than friends. Do you agree with that assessment? That's well said. That's that's very very well said. I think they, you know, in the 1950s when Jackie was so young and she came to Washington, and Lady Bird was already ruling the roost because she was the wife of the Senate Majority Leader. The gauge gap and the culture gap was very pronounced, but it was Lady Bird's duty to bring Jackie in. And so you're right. They both kind of played out their roles as they were expected to. The 1960 campaign, every, the script flips totally and the power dynamics change, but Jackie didn't want to campaign and was dealing with miscarriages and pregnant. And Lady Bird by then is just full political animal all in. And, and I think you're right. They, they know their roles. They're extremely generous with one another. They, Lady Bird, after the campaign, then as second lady steps in for Jackie all the time. I think it's a little bit more than partners in history because I think Lady Bird had a lot of empathy for Jackie always. And she was exercising she was doing what she could to help jackie out from kind of a personal humane point of view and obviously that massively grows after on the day of the assassination and in the that 14-day transition from between november 22nd and december 6th um and that is very public right it's a kind of exercise in public grief and transition and they're both kind of doing their damnedest to make it as easy as possible one for the other and to get through it. I mean, can you imagine just how difficult that was? No. <laughs> Things no. kind of deteriorate. They deteriorate uh, pretty significantly. And the, the, there's a scene at the end of the book when Lady Bird talks about finding Jackie in St. Patrick's Cathedral at Bobby Kennedy's funeral. And, and that is a very difficult moment. She describes, the, she uses the word hostility to describe the vibe she gets from Jackie. Doesn't use the word vibe. That's my word. Um, so, but then they recover Tomage and, you know, they spend every summer in the 1980s, they run into one another and they manage to spend a day together each summer at Martha's Vineyard. So they do, I think, go from partners in history to some kind of friendship. Yeah. Now, a major problem for Lyndon Johnson throughout his presidency was the clear hostility that he and Bobby Kennedy yeah. had for each other from day one. So what did Lady Bird think of Bobby Kennedy? Lady Bird's diary is filled with 
her attempts to make sense of Bobby Kennedy. You know, she, I think, understood, you really hear this in the 1964 convention, but even before that, right? She sees, there's this wonderfully poignant scene where she rides in the car with Jackie and the kids and Bobby Kennedy and Lyndon from the White House to the Capitol on the weekend uh, that he's lying, that, uh, that, sorry, that Jack is laying in state and she finds him inscrutable. She can see what a mess he is emotionally, but she finds him inscrutable. And then she kind of tracks with, she wants to give him the benefit of the doubt. She sees how significant he can be politically, how eloquent he is with words, how handsome, how young. But she and Lyndon both kind of loathe the idea of their presidency being bracketed by two Kennedys. And so Bobby Kennedy is like a stalking horse, you know, and he's not only, they're not, they're aware not only that he's going to run for the presidency, but then he tries to get into their issues, criticizes them on Vietnam. He tries to go farther on civil rights and say what's wrong with the war on poverty legislation and that great society needs to be even greater. And he positions himself as, you know, more liberal than they are in every way. And it drives them crazy. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned uh, their uh, radio and television stations, and obviously uh, those they made a fortune off of them. And it was funded with Lady Bird's money. Uh, and, you know, uh, took, they had him for decades. Uh, so, so what role did Lady Bird and Lyndon each play in the running of that business? Well, since you read my book, you know that there's not much in there about the book, in the book about that, because the actual records about the business are closed. And I would not be able to add much more than what's already known about that. And the truth is where one's role started and the other stopped, I don't think I have the solid ground to say it. We know that Lady Bird was very active in running the radio station when they first acquired it, in getting the books together, in bringing it into, in modernizing it, and in acquiring the television station. We know that Lyndon used his political muscle and clout to get the FCC license and do it in a way so as to keep competitors out. And um, But as the station grows and their empire grows, that's where it gets a little bit, I think, murky to be able to say who did what when. Well, when I read in your book that uh, the business records are closed, they are, quote, permanently closed. I assume that means no historian is ever going to get to review them. I mean, did that surprise you? I mean, that's not a matter uh, of national security. I, w- I was surprised that they had, you know, as, as a former president of the United States, presumably you're supposed to be an open book unless it involves national security or something like that. Well, well I, I thought, I thought. I don't, I, I think that the line that they were success, obviously successfully able to draw is that they, um, that this was their private business. And, you know, Lady Bird put her stock in the business in trust when they went into the White House. And, 
I, I actually don't know the answer to on what authority they had the ability to close their private businesses records, but they weren't, the records weren't, they weren't government documents. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. We, we should ask the daughters if they plan to open the, those records. But I they're not, the I think, that question. I think not subject to um, the same kind of, you know, we can't write a Freedom of Information Act request for those. And they're certainly not subject to the kind of bias toward transparency that you see at the library, which is the National Archives that runs it. Right. Now, as First Lady, and you touched on this earlier, uh, Lady Bird was best known for her leadership of the effort to beautify America. And during LBJ's presidency, as you point out, it really was the nation's environmental uh, agenda and, and also her effort to achieve environmental urban design in Washington, D.C. before Washington, D.C. Uh, was a home rule. And you point out in the book that Lady Bird hated the word beautification. Yeah. So why did she hate that word? Well, it was a word that was too much of a euphemism that concealed her environmentalism. And I think it, it felt like too much of a kind of um, feminized way of talking about something that was way more substantive, which was for her the idea of how to guarantee democratic access to nature, access to nature for all not just in the national parks, but in American cities and specifically in Washington, D.C., which is, you know, she was a Washingtonian as well as a Texan. And she had many experiences and kind of understood in her bones that if you have a majority black city that's totally segregated, where there's no local government, no power of tax, no representation in the Congress, you have a very big problem. And Washington, D.C., we still, I'm, I'm just outside of Washington, D.C., there's still, D.C. doesn't have statehood. At the time, when the home rule legislation was first introduced by Lyndon Johnson, the budget for everything that happened in the District of Columbia was controlled by a little committee in the House. And one of the things that, that was very much the case is that even though this is a very verdant and beautiful area, the resources for, for public recreation were incredibly limited in the black parts of Washington, D.C. And she was a swimmer and she was a hiker and she was a person who found great solace in nature and understood how deprivation of green space in American cities could be such a problem in the context of so many other kinds of deprivations and in the wake of urban renewal programs that had obliterated communities of color all around the country. So beautification, that word, is just not enough to describe the two paragraphs I just stated about what it was she was really interested in. And she tried to, by the end of her time in the White House, she instructed her staff not to use the word and told the staff to tell journalists not to use the word either. She wanted to talk about the environment and conservation and to sort of unpack all the elements of, of those concepts. As far as her environmental policy went, uh, how much did her program actually accomplish? 
So, so there's where we go into kind of the realm of the tragedy of the Johnson presidency. Her, her ties with philanthropists and her ability to mobilize money and public resources for um, planting along highways and of course in Washington, DC, that legacy is very present. As far as her big idea for developing a massive recreation uh, park and urban swimming hole, giant swimming hole along and inside of the Anacostia River, we have the Potomac River and the Anacostia River that border the Southern part of, of the District of Columbia, that didn't go anywhere. It, it was such an ambitious agenda, and I shouldn't say it didn't go anywhere. By 1968, there was a, a, a number of elements that were coming into place, but with LBJ leaving the presidency and with the um, kind of the gap between her ambition and the politics of trying to mobilize as many resources as were needed, it, it fell flat. But I think, you know, I was talking the other day to somebody who's an architect, who's the incoming president of the American Institute of Architects. And we were talking about this idea that what happens in American cities when there's big, uh, big flood of federal money for infrastructure, which is what we're the discussion that we're having right now in this country. And I think that one of the things that we could say as part of her legacy, and certainly you could see it in Austin, Texas, which is a separate matter, is to do some real serious thinking on the front end before we use federal funds to just throw up new buildings and um, do this without, or highways for that matter, without thinking exactly about who is affected and how to mitigate the negatives and how to, to spend money wisely so that access to nature is actually a value that we can promote rather than having to back end into it. Mm -hmm. Now, the Vietnam War uh, obviously was LBJ's biggest nightmare and his worst, mm -hmm. and his worst decision. Uh, it was, as you use the word properly, a morass. And in fact, I've forgotten this, you point out both of LBJ and Lady Bird's son-in-laws went to Vietnam uh, with the military. Uh, did Lady Bird ever weigh in uh, on how her husband handled the war, uh, either during his life or after his life? Well, I want to read something to you, which um, is the caption of one of the photographs in the book, which is her talking about Vietnam post facto. He's already dead and she's in Washington, D.C. in 1977. But before I just read this, this little quote of her, you know, she says at one point in 1966 that two-thirds of what she spends her time talking to Lyndon about is Vietnam. It was completely consuming and from a very early, from very early days, I, there's this moment in um, right after the Gulf of Tonkin incident where she seems to be aware that war is coming and that she's a little bit naive about it, I would say. You know, she's got this feeling of foreboding, but somehow I think believes that they can 
she says, I think we've got a small war on our hands. And she speaks almost with the kind of pride of having her man to be the one that's leading us. It's, it's, it's not a very evolved position, but that changed pretty quickly. Explicitly for her though, it wasn't until the end of 1967 when her two sons, when Chuck and Pat were getting ready to go to war and Linda started bringing, excuse me, that's my dog, uh, wounded veterans, uh, quadriplegics, um, double and triple amputees to the White House. I think that plus the anti-war protests, excuse me, I got to just handle this. Paolo, hey, come here. When she finds herself on American campuses trying to promote her environmental agenda and the protest movement just completely drowns her out. So it's the family and the realization that her big policy ideas can't get any oxygen that that hits it. But I want to read this. And, and that's not till nine, the end of 1967. Before that, she also, like Lyndon, kind of has this idea that if you can bring American ingenuity to and electrify Texas, you can do it in the Mekong Delta. There's this kind of Wilsonian idealism about projecting American power, very, very common in American foreign policy. And they have, they share that idea that we can project our, our successes abroad. She was asked in uh, 1977 at the Kennedy Center whether she felt about Vietnam the way Lyndon did. And she said she felt like Lyndon, just as sorry, just as strained, just as ripped and not knowing the answer, but feeling this country had to live up to its commitment. It was extremely painful, of course, because he could not find an honorable way to end that war and he wanted this country to be united. So of course it was very eroding, wearing, painful period. Uh, I'm going to turn to uh, the questions from our audience. Uh, first of all, did, did Lyndon really call her bird? Oh, yes. Bird. That was it. Just bird. No, he called her ladybird, too. Okay. What I don't know is if he ever called her Claudia. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, next question. When they retired to the ranch after his presidency, what was their life like? Uh, as a couple, well, just kind of life general after they left Washington and went back to the ranch? Well, it, it didn't go on for too long. You know, one of the reasons they they were so eager to, to get out of Washington was because they were very conscious of his mortality and very fearful that a second term might bring severe illness to him while in the White House or kill him. And uh, he fell into quite a funky depression, a, a funk of depression once they were back at the ranch and couldn't be just, I mean, he was very broken and very distraught and very sad. And uh, Lady Bird was, you know, she was happy to be a grandmother and back in Texas and she had lots of projects and it, uh, he was, he was 
deteriorating pretty much before her eyes. I mean, he died in 1973, in January. So only four years together afterwards. Yeah, and he started smoking again, which was almost, you know, like trying to kill himself. I heard he was smoking pot, too, but I don't know about that. <laughs> uh, here's another question. Uh, someone thinks that from their other readings that Lyndon Johnson was so uh, bowed by the criticism of being a country bumpkin by the Kennedys that it made him afraid to act. And, con and, and he was concerned as to how they w would react. I, I don't think I've ever read that before, but I mean, do you have any sense of, of, of Lyndon's feeling that way in response to how the Kennedys were uh, describing him? I mean, I think he was, I think his experience of the vice presidency was miserable and the Kennedy, the crowd around the Kennedy in the West wing uh, around the Kennedys in the West Wing was very, very derisive and they really uh, hated him. And that was particularly the case between Bobby and Lyndon. They, they, their chemistry was terrible. And he was, it's true, absolutely. I mean, it was a miserable thing that, as Liz Carpenter said, that this happened in Texas, um, the assassination he was a Texan. This was his state. It reinforced the worst of that kind of derision and suspicion. But um, I think he shook that off pretty quickly, to be honest, because once he, this was a man who thrived on momentum. And once he got into the groove and was so um, focused on his agenda of 1964 and 1965 on the domestic front, especially the, the, the Kennedy, that Kennedy, I don't think he was paralyzed. If he was paralyzed, it wasn't because of the Kennedy uh, smear campaign. It was because of his own internal demons. Yeah. An interesting quote in your book that I'd never read before was uh, after the assassination. And of course, you know, uh, Kennedy got killed in Texas LBJ becomes the next president. He's from Texas. And Lady Bird said, in a way, it was a blessing that Conley got shot because uh, obviously uh, whoever was doing the killing, uh, presumably Oswald, uh, he wasn't just trying to target a, a Massachusetts president. He was he was going right. after everybody. So I, I'd never read that before. She also said, I can't remember if I included it in, in there, Tom, and she also said, I only wish it would have been me. Mm. Mm. Um, here's a, uh, a question. Um, well, let me find it. Uh, somebody uh, had a quote here that in May 1967, uh, Lyndon said to one of his daughters, quote, your daddy may go down in history as having started World War Three." Have you ever, I haven't heard that. Have you? I haven't heard that, but one of the things that that is peppered throughout their documents and Lady Bird's diary is that he was really afraid that the war would escalate so much in Vietnam that he would be in the position of, um, of, of using nuclear weapons. And he was very protective of the criticism of Harry Truman for having done so and aware of how much flack Truman was starting to take 
by the 1960s and he didn't want to be pushed into a, a position of, of using nuclear weapons. I think that could be what he was talking about there. Yeah. Uh, another question, uh, we had Susan Eisenhower uh, a couple of months ago talking about her book, How Ike Led. And the question is, uh, your thoughts on the interaction between President Eisenhower and LBJ as Senate Majority Leader uh, in terms of Eisenhower's domestic agenda and especially uh, Eisenhower's uh, policies and or actions on civil rights? Well, LBJ, of course, was the leader of the uh, work on the Senate floor in night for the 1957 civil rights bill and was very solicitous of Eisenhower. And that solicitousness continued, you know, at, once he was president and Eisenhower was retired. LBJ went to see him all the time, called him all the time, consulted with him all the time, up until right before he died, in fact. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, uh, Dennis, I think you're going to come back on. I want to encourage everybody. This book is wonderful. There's a reason it's a bestseller. It's gotten all the great reviews it has. Uh, and uh, Judy, you've been wonderful. I, I love your insights. I love the way you write. And, and I hope uh, you've got a, a lot more great books ahead of you. So, Oh, well, thank you, Tomage. Thank you. Really uh, grateful to be here with all of you. Okay. Dennis, you want to come on? Dennis, unmute yourself. Dennis, can you unmute yourself? No, he can't unmute yourself. There he is. Anyway. Now I, now I can. <laughs> oh, there okay, you go are. ahead, Hi. Dennis, go. I'm host. Wes had to unmute me. <laughs> okay. Well, well, Julia, thank you very much for joining us. That was that was wonderful. Learned a lot uh, about uh, about uh, Lady Bird, somebody that we do admire here because yes, because of her beautification of our highways, but certainly the the gardens. Yeah, I, I used the wrong word, but uh, the Wildflower Center is Austin. In Austin, is just yep. wonderful, wonderful place to go to. So thank you for telling us more about Lady Bird. And uh, I, I will try to share the screen and let everybody know where you can buy her book. All right. Well, thank you very much to all of you for coming tonight and for your patience with my delay. And I'd be really pleased to be with all of you tonight. Talmadge, thank you. Okay. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll talk soon. Have a wonderful okay. evening. Good night, okay. everybody. Thank you. Night. Thanks, Dennis. Bye-bye. After reading Julia Swig's solid new biography of Lady Bird Johnson, it made me realize that Lady Bird is on the short list of our most important first ladies in American history. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure and catch all my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Until next time, remember, as my late great friend Bobby Bregan used to say, you can't hit the ball with the bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford Bowen McKinley & Norton. Thanks for listening.